welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are beginning our M. Night Shyamalan series with Unbreakable. A man learns something extraordinary about himself after a devastating accident. All right. This is a 2000 film, and I have never seen this. Nor have I, and I have not seen most of this director's work either. Actually, all the films we're going to watch, you've never seen. <laughs> I've seen two of them. <laughs> this Plus, is a director that I think most people have very strong opinions he's about. He's very polarizing. You either thought he was a genius and then he sold out. Or you or- thought he was a hack who... Was able to create a bunch of interest in his movies. Yeah, he was just an overblown dude who did one thing. So this will be a little interesting, kind of like, you know, we did Kubrick, so now we're doing Shyamalan. I have seen the thing that broke him, The Sixth Sense. And I have not. Of course, we all know what the twist of it is. Yeah. So we will be watching that for our Patreon content for this series. So if you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do that at patreon.com slash Macintosh and Mod. At the $2 and up level, you get access to all of our premium content. So this film was not what I was expecting at all. Mostly because I really didn't know what to expect. I knew there was a comic book theme running through it. And we know that it is a part of a series. But that's it. That's all I got. A series that we had no idea was a series up until like a year ago. (laughs) Yeah, up until Glass was released this year, I was like, oh. Those all go to get. Okay. Ah, I don't like this movie. Okay. I still don't know how I feel about it. I didn't hate it, but it's weird. I I don't know how I feel about it. I don't think it's weird. I think it's forced weird. Mm -hmm. It goes to a larger thing that his style is far more than his substance. That is my concern with these movies that I think has probably been the impression that I've gotten from a lot of his filmmaking. I think that is a fair assessment of this particular film. I don't think that's fair when you look at his other works. He has a keen eye. He has an interesting way of viewing cinema, but it doesn't serve the story that he wants to tell. And I'm curious to see how that's going to shake out as I watch more of these movies. Okay. There's another part of this film that it is a part of a whole story. So like we know we have split and then there's glass. So we've only seen the first bit of the story. Now, Kubrick rules. If you need context to enjoy a film, it's it's a shitty film. Still stand by that. Yes. But like I said in our It Too thing, that movie doesn't stand on its own because it's a second part of a two-part story. So that might be a little bit of what we have here. We have the first part of a bigger story, and he wasn't able to contain it in this one film. My concern is that that second part Uh has been reverse engineered from stories he's already told. I don't know. That's the fear I have, Mm. is not that it's a well-thought-out sequel that he never created, but instead is something that he concocted in order to resurrect these stories. I mean, that's not always a bad thing. Star Wars. Mm, Star Wars was planned out. I mean, all of that stuff that we saw in George Lucas's later years had already been written in his original concept. It's just that he didn't have the money or resources to make it. Well, I know some of it's the technology and whatnot, but also 
there was some shit in there that you know he just reconfigured to validate other stuff that people complained about later. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, we've got, you know, like Rogue One. Like, this is an entirely invented story based on a handful of lines in these films. Like, that's not, like, let's not punch down on that because it can totally work. But, and we have not seen them, so we cannot speak to whether or not they are good or bad. I'm just saying that that is something that might later influence our opinion on this film. I agree. Okay. Like, and I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm also, I am sitting here and also raising red flags. <laughs> that's all. I don't disagree. <laughs> that's that I'm raising my red flag going, I have a concern that this is not going to work out well. I am thoroughly neutral on this movie and you are thoroughly negative. So it's coming off like I'm much more positive about this film than I actually am. But also, I like to argue. So, yeah. <laughs> That's what, what else are we doing? Here? And here we are. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. We're going to get into it. All right. The budget for this film was $75 million, and its cumulative worldwide gross was $248 million. So, it definitely made them their money. He's coming fresh off a giant hit. Yeah. This is the film he made right after The Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. which was his big thing. So, of course, people were going to go see this. And he's our writer. So before this, he wrote Praying with Anger, Wide Awake, The Sixth Sense, and he wrote Stuart Little. After this, he wrote Signs, The Village, Lady in the Water, The Happening, The Last Airbender, Devil, After Earth, After Hours, The Television Show, The Visit, Split, Glass, and it was just announced that he will be doing Labor of Love. He came up with the idea for this movie while filming The Sixth Sense, which also starred Bruce Willis. And okay, this does this does explain a few things. The film derived from the first third of the original script. M. Night Shyamalan felt no connection to the last two thirds of the text and decided to get rid of them. <sighs> yeah. Okay. okay. So that does explain that from the very beginning, you always felt that there was more going on with this story, which explains additional movies later on. Yeah, that does explain that. I guess a whole lot happens that doesn't seem to have been earned. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot is stretched out over the course of an hour and 45 minutes that probably didn't need that long to tell. No, it's much longer than it needs to be. And I think it moves a lot slower than it has to. I do like the story. And I like the idea that you've got this guy on this one end of the spectrum and this guy on the other end of the spectrum. One guy is unbreakable. One guy is glass. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is an interesting idea to play with. And I like that of that our way into that is dealing with comic books. Like that's part of our template for what's going on. Yeah. That's a really good way to present it to the audience. But there's so much going on with David that we don't need. All this stuff with his marriage makes no sense. It's garbage and frankly borders on weird male privilege stuff. What I would have preferred because like you've you've got to show his life. Like what is he doing? Is he can't connect with his son and then when his son finds out that his dad is a superhero basically, that's when his son won't leave him alone. Pull the Santa Claus yeah. bit, but dark and twisted. Yeah. Which, which <laughs> I like, mean, that story that story's already been written. Yeah, and it's great. It's this weird garbage take in some ways of well, now that he's come into his own as a protector, He's now able to provide the way he never was before. So his marriage and his fatherhood can be repaired. Well, and they they keep trying to pull you in this way that like, oh, something happened with 
Audrey and, you know, you think there's some twist and it's like, no, the twist is that he was never injured. He just decided it was a good excuse to give up football so that he could stay with the woman he loves, which her whole reason for not liking football is so convoluted and egotistical. I just couldn't be with somebody who uh, engages in that type of violence. Like, it's just like, what? This is going to give me a bit of a baseline Mm -hmm. because he's hailed sometimes as a writer. Mm -hmm. My biggest problem is he writes amazing premises, Mm -hmm. but has no clue how to construct the whole thing into a film based off of the two I've seen. Signs is this great premise and unique, interesting way in. And then it falls apart. And then it all falls apart by the end. And in this one, it kind of feels like mush by the end. It's taken so long for us to get there that you don't care. No, you don't care. And he's telegraphed all of the twists he's going to throw out. And I'm fine with some of that, but I feel like we should have had more of Elijah instructing him because then the twist that Elijah's the villain has more emotional weight to David. Like it should have been I'm pushing you to discover how much strength you have. I'm pushing you to become the hero that you can be. And oh, yeah, I'm the one who did all of this shit trying to find you. And now that I've found you, you belong to me. And then that whole scene with his son and the gun is one of the most unearned and bizarre. It's very unearned, but it is actually based on a true story. That's fine. And it's a very interesting take, but it's so weirdly jarring how it's placed and how it's put into the movie mm-hmm. that it it really does, does feel like, I, I have these really cool ideas for scenes. Let's put it in a movie. Mm-hmm. Not thinking that there's got to be a story through line for us to care. Yeah. It just doesn't work, and it feels like mush by the end. I'm just mm-hmm. going, why do I care about any of these people? You don't. Yeah. It's not good. No. Next, our director is M. Night Shyamalan. So everything he wrote, he directed, except for Stuart Little. <laughs> he says, of all the films he's made, this is his personal favorite. And this is considered one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films. I used to be in love with Quentin Tarantino. He's a garbage human. He really is. Okay. I think he is an amazing director. Okay. Because this movie does look gorgeous. There are so many long tracking shots that are beautiful, that really are, that move through different panes and foreground and background and you play with shadow. It's beautiful. He uses shadow in a way that I have not seen since like Hitchcock. Like true, like honestly, that's just the direction, just how the film looks. I think he's doing a film school level imitation of Hitchcock. Those shots that I'm seeing, I'll take, for example, the first sequence on the train Mm -hmm. where we pan in between the seat. That one I hate because it's unnecessary because it should have been just staying on him. We should have never seen the lady or it, it should have been one. You can see what's happening is the camera looks at Bruce Willis. He says his line. The camera goes up and moves and the actor is waiting for the camera to be in its spot before they say their line. Yeah. That's what's so fucking obnoxious. And it does that for a solid 10 minutes. Every scene for a lot of this movie felt like that for me. Every scene felt like it was lingering for so long for no reason. 
I'm probably being harsher than I need to be by saying film school, but I don't understand why you shot things with such a rich, interesting angle at certain moments. It's meant to mimic the flow of comic book storyboards. I didn't feel that at all. One thing I think might be the reason for that, and this might not necessarily be his fault because Mm -hmm. he's not the cinematographer, the way it's lit. The way the movie's lit doesn't feel like a comic book to me. No, it is because of all of the stark angles and the shadows. Hmm. They're very specific. Like when he puts on his poncho, he's supposed to look like a superhero. It's It's meant to cover his face. It's supposed to be harsh. And then also you have everything is desaturated except for the primary colors. Red, blue, yellow, green, purple. Those are the colors that are so saturated. When we see them, they are meant to stick out. The other side of it may be all of those things are going on, and yet the performances feel real flat. Well, the story idea is great. The writing is not. We've agreed with that. And our cast, we know to be phenomenal actors. But can this guy get good performances out of his actors? Not based on this film? Yeah. I think that may be what's going on, is the juxtaposition of flat writing and then flat performances as a result mm-hmm. with very dynamic filmmaking feels and, real weird and off. And if M. Night is so committed to what he wrote, he may not realize that the performances might be a little flat. Yeah. I mean, so one it, would think if you see the dailies, you would see that, but you never know. But if that's exactly what he envisioned, then to him, that's great. Yeah. And nobody like does a horrible job acting wise. It's just... Because it moves so slow, it gets really boring. This is one thing I think we differ on sometimes is Mm -hmm. that for me, the worst thing a movie can do is be meh. Like if you're bad, but you're spectacularly bad, I might actually rate you higher. No, that's fair because you're just phenomenal to watch this train wreck that's occurring here. I know. And for me, the absolute worst thing you can do is be boring and there be very little interesting to see what's going on. Like you can be boring when you're a supporting character who's barely in the movie. Well, and if you're being boring on purpose and you're doing a phenomenal job of it, Mm. hey, that can be its own thing. But this to me feels like you flattened out an equalizer and everything's just monotone. And I'm going, I don't, what am I supposed to latch on? All right, let's get to our cast. M. Night always had Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson in mind to play these roles. So he got his dream cast. This was the fourth film to feature Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson's. The others were Loaded Weapon 1, Pulp Fiction, and Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, my heart. That movie Which, is so ridiculous and so good. So Bruce Willis is David Dine. Just so I can set it for you in his, his career. Because we've never actually had him on the show before. We've never fully talked about him. so yeah. But I still only grabbed the big ones because he's oh, been yeah. in a ton of stuff. So he did Die Hard. He was on Moonlighting, the TV series. Luke who's talking. He's the voice of the baby in that series. Death Becomes Her, The Fifth Element, Sixth Sense, The Whole Nine Yards. After this, he was in Ocean's 12, Alpha Dog, Grindhouse, The Expendables, Red, Moonrise Kingdom, Looper. He was in Split and Glass. And he is going to be in the upcoming Motherless Brooklyn. I mean, I'm always happy to see Bruce Willis I don't think he's bad. I think he's playing the page. And I do like a stern Bruce Willis because he's usually action dude or hamming it up dude. Well, and he is different in this movie. Mm -hmm. And if everybody else had given super committed and different performances, Mm -hmm. his soft spokenness would stand out more. Yeah. 
I really love how soft he feels in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like even John passive. McClane, He's very passive. Even John McClane, who is very much an every guy character. Mm-hmm. It was a revolution in how we envisioned action heroes for John McClane to come around. And Bruce Willis does that by being a jacked guy, but feeling kind of schlubby when you see him. Mm-hmm. And some of that was moonlighting and the impression that people had of him. Yeah. But this takes it even further by moving him into a passive, soft-spoken, unwilling to put himself forward. And it's a really good, interesting turn. I think the problem is that everybody else feels like they're giving super reserved performances mm-hmm. where they need to amp it up. Yeah. Because he needs to stay there because he is the most interesting performance on camera. Well, and I like when he falls in the pool. Yeah. That's like his worst nightmare. And I just like how he handles it. And I mean, that, the weight scene and just the, the sort of shock on his face. But this strength and reserve of he's always thought it's just being passive. And it's like, no, that's that inner strength that you have that mm-hmm. you haven't tapped into. Well, you're at rest. Yeah. Because nothing's a threat to you. Yeah. You have that intuition to know that something's wrong and you know how to, you'll be able to handle it if it happens. So yes, he is always just at rest. Yeah, it's so. it, it really is a good performance from him. And mm-hmm. I just wish there was more coming from other people for him. Hmm. Next we have Samuel L. Jackson as Elijah Price. And I am not going through his credits because he's motherfucking Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> I'm sorry. He is Samuel motherfucking Jackson. I mean, you, could, you just put motherfucking in there yeah. and you're good. Mm-hmm. He's never bad in a movie. There are moments where I really like what he's doing with the character. Mm-hmm. It's very odd in that they are the same. They mm-hmm. have the same character arc, yeah. he and Bruce Willis, but the opposite issue. And we talk about that opposite side mm-hmm. of a spectrum. Yes. A physical spectrum here. Correct. Because it's Samuel Jackson and he would have done this so well against Bruce Willis. I would have liked... Elijah to be physically very reserved because he has to protect himself. Right. But I would like his face and his words to be so animated. He is so excited that he finally found a hero. He's finally met somebody who can who can be his equal. His character starts off cynical mm-hmm. once we meet him as an adult. Yes. And it feels like, and I would pin this on the director. Mm-hmm. I would. It feels like M. Night did not push him to get past that cynicism, Mm -hmm. to continue to cultivate this hope that this person has turned into that. Instead, he still feels skeptical Mm -hmm. about this other guy's abilities the entire time, even though he's clearly learning that this guy was never injured. Okay, so he could be cynical to start with. Yeah. Because he hasn't found him yet. Of course. And then as he starts to see David come into his abilities, he starts to get a little more manic and impatient and a little more crazed because he doesn't. He kind of has that, I guess, breakdown in the comic book store. Which is good. But it doesn't feel like there's any payoff to it. Nor was there any moment that we felt like it led up to that? Like maybe if he was in like a manic state and went to the comic book store and is scouring the comic book store trying to find an answer or a clue or a direction to go in because he can't get David to try anymore or try harder. 
Like that would make that make so much sense because then he's like, I've been through all the comics here and I can't find it. And I'm just I'm refusing to leave until I find it. Well, there's that. The other side of it is, had we seen his hopes get up mm-hmm. and then for David to turn around and tell him, I'm not doing this anymore. Stay away from me or I'm calling the police and him to kind of go catatonic. That would mm-hmm. finally make some sense. Yes. But he stays in this one level And to me, that's a directing choice Mm -hmm. because Samuel L. Jackson can do whatever you want him to do on screen. Mm -hmm. It just played wrong at the wrong moments. Mm -hmm. And we never get the character payoff to make us really care. Yeah. The color of the present that he gets purple purposely for Samuel L. Jackson. That's his his favorite color. That was a deliberate choice. The glass cane that Elijah Price uses was Samuel L. Jackson's idea. Interesting. And I like, I think it's perfect because I love that visual of the cane shattering when he falls down the stairs because that's a very visual representation of what's happened to his bones. Yeah. Okay. Next, we have Robin Wright as Audrey Dunn. We've never talked about her either. Weird. I know. It feels weird. I feel like we should have, but I think you and I have talked about her. She was a who could have been better recently. Yes, she was. She was a recent who could have been better. Before this, she was in The Princess Bride, Forrest Gump, Message in a Bottle. After this, she was in The Last Circle, White Oleander, State of Play, Moneyball, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, House of Cards, Wonder Woman, Blade Runner 2049, and she will be in the upcoming Wonder Woman 1984. I love her with brown hair. <laughs> it, it, it softens her. She does have a very severe look, and that works so well with some of the characters she played. Here, she's supposed to be a softer person, so I, li- I, li- I like that choice. I think she's an amazing actress who can do literally whatever you ask her to do. Yes. I think the biggest problem is her character's not necessary to this story. Nope. She's boring. In doing that, she is trying so hard to act those scenes with as much as she can give them. But when your character's superfluous and badly written, I don't know how you do that. The only purpose she serves is for Elijah to get more information about David. And they could have done that much more masterfully. It's that and it's to build up David's masculinity. Which is still stupid. It's gross, frankly. It's a bad move. And that's one thing. It's just something about this movie that's aged really awfully. Mm -hmm. I have one who could have been better. Okay. Julianne Moore was offered the part but turned it down to work on Hannibal. Frankly? I think she would have been better. No, I actually like Robin Wright for this more. I just wish there was more for her to do in it. Next, we have Spencer Treat Clark as Joseph Dunn. Before this, he had done some TV movies and TV spots. He was in Arlington Road, Double Jeopardy, and Gladiator. He was in something recently that you and I watched, and I want to know if you can guess what it was. Hustlers? No, but I will say this. As an adult, his face looks the exact same. I have no idea. He was a Mystic River lover boy, The Last House on the Left, Much Do About Nothing, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and he was in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina as the angel... Jarathaniel. Oh, yeah. He looks the exact same. Okay. He's just blonder. That's it. Okay. All yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Now I know. Yeah. And then he's been on the TV series Animal Kingdom. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's a weird kid in an M. Night movie. <laughs> it's, it's, that's what he is. He's a Haley Joel Osment fill-in. <laughs> he is. It's like, we're, we can't recast Haley Joel. He's in high demand, and he's going to do that really shitty movie called AI. So we can't have him. I will say this to his credit. Even though it's unearned, the emotions he feels around his dad, because it's just so hastily slapped on the page, mm-hmm. 
he does about as good a job as he can at making it feel as real as possible. Mm -hmm. I'd have to give him that credit. He feels very vulnerable and raw and confused about what's going on with his dad. Yeah. And he's really doing a lot of hard work to feel that way. That's fair. So I, I, I have to commend him for that. I think it's just because it's so slapdash how it's been put together for his character. Mm hmm. It just doesn't ever quite get there. He's able to do better than even Robin Wright is with her character. Yeah. And that's saying something. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, everyone else is just in the movie for like two seconds. So they're really not worth talking about. But I do have one Arpon. An Arpon? It's Michael Kelly. He plays the ER doctor. Hey, what's up, Doug? Yeah, it's Doug from House of Cards, which, you know, that Robin Wright lady's in. <laughs> He's also very creepy and dark in this movie. He's just he's just an ER doctor, and it's just a grim story. Like this is the one guy who's gonna live out of all these people dying. So I I love his sort of twist around and looking at him like you don't even understand or comprehend what's happened here, do mm -hmm. you? <laughs> all right, let's get into trivia. Trivia. The movie was shot in sequence. Ah, uh, yeah. <sighs> the stadium that David Dunn works at is actually Franklin Field at the University of Pennsylvania. It is the oldest stadium in the country and the first to have an electronic scoreboard, an upper deck, and the first site of a live radio and television broadcast. That's kind of cool. It's a very common, like we have the director's trademarks that it's set in Philadelphia, which is most of M. Night's movies. There's a car accident that's pivotal to the story. And then a twist ending. Uh, and then, of course, he also always has a cameo in his films. And this time he plays the stadium drug dealer. How very Hitchcock of him. Yeah, it's okay. You know what? It's my movie. I'm going to show up in it just a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> I'm all right with it. You can definitely feel he wants to make movies like Alfred Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And whether or not he fully gets there, I admire him for making that effort. Just this was not it. That's fair. The first comic that Elijah receives is an issue of Active Comics, and the logo is deliberately meant to look like Action Comics, the series that introduced Superman. Yeah. Which is cool. I liked that. Elijah asked David what made him choose a protection as a career of all things when he could have been founder of a chain of restaurants. Bruce Willis is famously one of the investors of Planet Hollywood. <laughs> so that was cute. That was a little cheeky. I liked it. That's very fun. So I mentioned it before. The scene where David's son tries to shoot him to prove that he has superpowers has to do with an actual accident that happened with George Reeves. He was once confronted by a child who threatened to shoot him with a real gun while he was in his Superman costume. Reeves got the boy to put the gun down by convincing him that it would ricochet off of him and hurt someone else. So, like, I get that, but that scene is so unearned. So that's I, obnoxious. The high points of this movie are really cool and fascinating. Yes. That is a fascinating scene to play if you've built things up to it. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't, why are you doing that? That is the most frustrating part about this movie is that mm -hmm. he's got these amazing moments that we could lead up to, mm -hmm. but he doesn't give us any connective tissue. No. It's, ugh, I want it to be better. <laughs> I know. The name Elijah is a biblical reference. Elijah was prophesied to return to earth to pave the way for the coming of the son of David, a savior. Cool. That's cool. I, I can dig it. I David, like it. Elijah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The name David Dunn is very common for secret identities. 
you know, especially Marvel ones. They're very alliterative. Peter Parker, Bruce Banner, Matt Murdock, Reed Richards. You know, even though Clark Kent was a little bit different, but it had the same sound. Yeah. So that was like, okay, cute. And then we get to the color schemes, you know, David's is green and Elijah's is purple. Opposite colors. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something to be said about this is well before the MCU, the takeoff of movies, even the new Batman trilogy, which really kicked off more comic book movies being made as quote unquote serious movies. And this is a take on the idea that's been posited in certain things of, okay, superheroes exist. Mm -hmm. What are the real implications of that? Yeah. X-Men touched on it a little bit, but this movie's asking some of those interesting questions. It's just doing it in a really clumsy way. Yeah. David's green raincoat makes him bear a striking resemblance to the DC Comics character, the Spectre, an immortal being tasked with punishing the wicked. And he wears a green hood to obscure his face. And David wears the raincoat, the poncho, to protect him from his kryptonite water. Yep. So I love that. I, th- I feel like those calls and those touches were just so perfect and beautiful that like, even if you didn't real- realize it at first, when you think back on it, you're like, oh, that was really smart. I just wish the scenes were written better and it was tightened up because the idea is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. At its core, there's a really good movie here. Mm-hmm. You just needed four or five more rewrites. Yeah. Well, that's all I got. Time to rate this movie. All right, how many broken bones? Oh, I was going to go ponchos. Oh. Mm. Security ponchos. All right, ponchos. Okay. We talked about it. Mm-hmm. I was feeling pretty down about the movie. Okay. But I'm actually going to bring it up to a two. Okay. I wanted to go lower, but I'm going to bring it up to a two because there's a lot of promise here. Mm-hmm. One, as we talked about it, I realized I really do like Bruce Willis's performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. And there are actually great moments. But there's just a ton of middle mush in this movie that just makes it not good at the end of the day. So while there's a lot of promise and talent there, it just kind of muddles its way through. I think it gets a two for me from that. Okay. I completely agree. I was going to go with a two. I really love the idea. I feel like the execution is actually pretty good with what we have. Like, I think it looks beautiful. I love the design. I love the concepts that are happening i like the cast but we need a different script yeah and that just really hurts so much so it's a two so Mm -hmm. with that in mind what are we doing next week next week we're gonna watch the village oh which i had a very awesome experience watching this film so it'll be really interesting for me to see it the second time knowing what happens all right well until next time bye everybody bye Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.